Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Ron Pigpen McKernan died at the age of 27, and he lived a life that required cosmic karmic intervention to bring it to an end. And I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Three would be the number of eventful hospital stays he'd have, not from his lifelong devotion to drinking, but due to a genetic disease. Another two would be the number of years he'd give up his favorite pastime in an attempt to reverse the damage of that disease. Four more would be the number of days he'd be gone before the dead would pay tribute to him in an unlikely way, by partaking in that favorite pig pen pastime and drinking too much at his wake. Another four would be the number of players who would do their best to fill the void pig left. Ten more would be the number of years that would pass from the time Ron McKernan and Jerry Garcia first formed a musical bond to the day that the first of them would shuffle off this mortal coil. And four would be the number of dead members who would continue to wave that flag after Jerry followed Pig into the dark of night. All totaling 27. On this, our final episode of Season 5, Eventful Hospital Stays, Reversing the damage, filling the void, and Ron Pigpen McKernan. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
The phone was buzzing. It shook violently on the hook, its shrill ring echoing off the walls. The two women sitting across from each other at the desk exchanged a long look. And the phone buzzed again, and they knew who was calling. He called most days, but one of the women sighed and finally picked it up. Hello? Hey, pig. About 15 miles north of San Francisco, on the other side of that line, Pigpen sat in a half-empty apartment in Corte Madera, his patented cowboy hat covering his black hair. He had started to make a habit out of calling the Grateful Dead San Francisco offices about nothing in particular, just to chat. In between drags of a cigarette, he asked how things were going over there and what they were up to today. Mundane, everyday conversation. But that mundane, everyday conversation was like medicine for Pig. After a lengthy stay at the hospital in Novato, he went home to Palo Alto, and after a handful of weeks under the care of his parents, he was back to his own place. And being alone was starting to get to him. The rest of the dead had visited Pig at his apartment, but now they were gone on tour, and he hadn't seen any of his musical comrades for more than a month. And the only person he'd ever see at home was the medical staff who came to check on him, and occasionally his landlady. Maybe two or three times a week, he'd hop in his Ford Cortina and cruise over to a friend's house or make an in-person visit to the offices just to break up the day. But besides that, he'd just been gathering dust while the dead were out of town. And so the calls to the dead's office became a way to tether himself to the world. And although Pig had nursed his girl V back to health after she had a stroke, V would not be returning the favor. Pig had sent her away. He didn't want her around. Not when he looked like this. The romance that had survived all of Pig's travels on the road in his raucous lifestyle was officially over. And the other half of his heart was out there on the road somewhere in the United States touring, playing the tunes he once banged out night after night on his organ. And there wasn't much that could cure Pig's blues. He couldn't drink, and the only thing he cared to smoke were cigarettes, but they didn't drive out the feeling gnawing at his bones an overwhelming sensation of loneliness. There was really only one thing he could do when he felt like this. He coughed as he pulled himself out of bed, straining with each little movement as he tried to keep himself moving, keep himself working towards something. He picked up an acoustic guitar and moved to a chair and a small table with a tape recorder. His bony body lurched over it, and he ashed his cigarette and pressed record. Pig strummed his guitar, and the vibrations from the strings ricocheted through his weakened body like a buckshot. He clenched the neck of the acoustic and steadied himself. The pain throughout his body was still ruthless, but the music somehow seemed to help. As the warm hum of the tape spun along, Pig began to pick out notes, and then his voice found the melody. Words and music he had written that he'd been working on for quite some time, and they felt different when he wrote them months ago, but now, in this moment, they felt more honest. Pain, weakness, a broken heart. Pig had long processed these topics through others' words. Robert Hunter, Otis Redding, Lightning Hopkins. But these words, these were his. This is how he felt. The words echoed throughout the hollow apartment and onto the tape. And they were both urgent and had an air of acceptance. And the words of a man who knew the other side wasn't so far off that the great mystery of life would be answered shortly. The music was intended for an album. Bob and Jerry had made their own records and both had been insisting it was Pig's turn, maybe. Or maybe the tunes could just be on the next Dead record. Either way, Pig just longed to get back to work. 
He wasn't bowing out, not yet. Even with his current medical status, he was still certain he'd get back on the road, back in the studio. His doctors would just have to clear it. But for the past decade, Pig had done what his idols had done. He lived the life the way they did. He lived life in the moment. The future was just something out in the distance, a foreign concept. But the future inevitably arrived and his body couldn't keep up. It spoke to Pig by shutting down, time after time, begging him to stop. Time after time, putting him back in the hospital. And time after time, Pig gave it just enough TLC to get himself back on the road or into the studio. But now, he had to be extra careful. Pig was watching all his levels, charting everything he ate, following his doctor's orders and paying close attention to what was being asked of him medically. His fridge and freezer, no longer full of beer or liquor, were stuffed with very specific meals. Gone were the days of Thunderbird, bourbon, cheap barbecue, and sausages. Pig had cut his teeth on blues clubs and booze for the past 15 years. From the moment he woke up to the moment he passed out, Pig lived his life authentically. Hard drinking, long hours on stage or in the studio, constant travel, constantly working, and doing anything necessary to get by. If there was any possibility of making it back on the road, back to playing music with his brothers, Pig would do anything it took, even if that meant completely changing his lifestyle. And things had indeed felt like they were turning around. The traveling was hard on his body, sure, but it wasn't about the traveling. Hell, it wasn't even about playing to audiences. Pig just wanted to make music with his friends, the same way he had been for the last decade. He sung the last bars of his solemn tune and stopped the tape recorder. He found his way to a window and lit up another cigarette. And the sun shone brilliantly outside and Pig wanted nothing more than to once again be part of the world. He followed this routine throughout the month of January 1973 and did the same for February. Nothing changed and everything changed. No matter how he tried, Pig couldn't kick the illness. He couldn't repair the damage that had been done. He played music, followed his diet, and hoped against all hope that something would turn around. But nothing ever really did. He could never quite get up that hill. And just as Pig had slowly departed from the dead, he was now slowly departing from the world. His car left the garage less and less, until it stopped leaving altogether. He called down to the dead's offices again and requested that his organ be brought up to the house. He was glad to see the few members of the dead family that delivered it and greeted them as he always did with great warmth and a big smile. It seemed like a good sign. To the best knowledge of the dead and the rest of their organization, their brother was getting better. Pig didn't let on how bad things actually were. He didn't let on about any pain at all. He didn't want them to feel uncomfortable. Pig's organ was the only thing that kept him company for the next few days. On March 8th, 1973, Pigpen's landlady happened by the apartment and figured she would stop in and see how Pigpen was doing. His mailbox was stuffed with letters. She looked through the front window and could see a body laying on its side. Pigpen's body. And that day, he was pronounced dead. He was 27 years old. Even though Pigpen had been sick on and off again for two years, his death still came as a shock. It wasn't even the drinking that got him. It was a genetic disease. It seemed cruel. And the original inspiration for the Grateful Dead, their heart and soul, was dead and gone.
Jerry Garcia was anxiously tapping his foot. The cold beer in his hand shook ever so slightly. It was over. All of it. The Grateful Dead as he knew it, and as the world knew it. Done. The knot in his chest started to tighten up again. He took a deep breath and tipped back his beer. He couldn't remember how many he'd had at this point. He lost track an hour ago. All he knew was that it was more than he was accustomed to. The cold brew cut through the searing pain, but then his head began to swim, and the alcohol was slowly taking over. It made him think of so many things, and the way the floor smelled during the dead sets at the inn room in Palo Alto, the music car on the Festival Express cross-continental train ride. They all got hammered there, but mostly it made him think of his friend. His friend for whom the cold drink in his hand had held so much importance. His friend who helped him create the band to which he would dedicate most of his life. His friend whom he believed even given his lifestyle would be by his side forever. And that friend was now on the other side. He'd been given a front row seat to the great gig in the sky, but he was up there all alone. That last thought irked Jerry a bit. Pig was doing it alone. Just like he passed away in his apartment. Alone. A short while before that, Pig had come down to the Dead's rehearsal space. He was in no shape to play, but he wanted a photo with the band. His final photo with the band. The other band members brushed it off. They were too busy. Fuck. The regret sent Jerry's tight chest into overdrive. Now they'd never get a chance to take another photo with their friend. Jerry was destroyed, as were the rest of the Dead and their extended family. They were each informed by an unexpected phone call or an impersonal newspaper article. There was no final goodbye, no holding Pig's hand at the hospital, no long battle for which they could offer their support. Pig had been up and down, but even when things seemed fatal, he always bounced back. And the dead believed he would once again sit behind that organ and come up to the mic and turn the show into a revival. He seemed so optimistic the last few times he'd been around the group. And they were wrong. There would be no revival. Although Pig hadn't been a fully functioning member of the band for more than a year and hadn't played a show with the band in almost nine months, although the group had gone in directions that far outreached anything Pigpen was capable of from a musical standpoint, and although he had been holding on for dear life for years now, constantly adjusting to suit the needs of the band, the dead didn't seem like the dead without him. His death still left an immeasurably large black hole. It wasn't just about the music for the dead. This was their brother. He'd been there since day one. It might have been the alcohol talking, but Jerry wanted to end the group, then and there. The life force of pigs sustained something very precious and important in the dead's energy. And without it, he thought, they were something else entirely. They weren't even the Grateful Dead. But musing upon the funeral of the band was not what the evening was about. They had a real funeral to attend the next day. And the dead and their extended family had gathered just a few miles from the place of Pig's demise at Bob Weir's new house in Mill Valley for a wake, to send their friend and brother off in a way that he would have approved of. And this wasn't just some stuffy hall or church. They were out under the stars that Pig now danced amongst. They were surrounded by cases of ice-cold beer and several grills roasting all types of beef and birds, a meal that their brother-in-arms would have undoubtedly approved of. Bob's house, which may have been able to hold 50 people tops was flooded, packed wall to wall with hundreds of visitors. The crowd of pigpen admirers had now spilled out into the backyard. Jerry looked around the yard, and he quietly studied the familiar faces that were gathered. 
Their emotions ranged from elation to devastation, all sharing stories and smiles about their dear friend. It was clear that Pig's impact went beyond music, that he meant something special and different to every single person he met. They did their best to try and understand the tragic loss of a friend. The music Pig loved was older, but he was young, too young. It seemed unfair. Jerry's chest started to get tight again. He wondered if he could have done something, something different, something more, something to prevent the pain they were all experiencing at this moment. Pig's father sent the dead's entire organization a letter when he had heard the news. He told them it wasn't their fault, that there was nothing they could have done. Still, Jerry couldn't help but feel that nagging guilt that inevitably falls a death like this. It was as if the universe had conspired against him. As the dead star rose, pigs faded, and now here they were at their creative and commercial peak and he was gone. Nothing was gonna bring him back. Jerry moved to a nearby cooler and picked up another beer. He closed his eyes for a moment and listened to the tunes that emanated from a nearby stereo. He grinned. The cosmic irony of Pig's death now saw the band drinking heavily after Pig spent months abstaining. Shit, they were the ones who were always trying to get Pig to take some acid. He didn't have to go and die to get them to have some booze. It was a habit they'd take up in turns for the next three decades. It seemed the only fitting way to send him off, a requiem for Pigpen. The next morning, members of the Grateful Dead's extended family and Pigpen's biological family gathered for a more traditional funeral at a mortuary. The duality of the wake and the funeral represented the duality of Pig. The scruffy guy dressed like a hell's angel and who loved to party was at his core a caring, compassionate soul. That compassionate soul was returned to the infinite ether and his body laid in a casket. The dead made their way past saying their final goodbyes. In his final outfit, Pigpen looked as he ever did. His family chose to bury him in his leather vest and a brown collared shirt with his cowboy hat carefully placed on a pillow next to his head. Pig's family, as authentic as he was, knew that the last thing Pigpen would have wanted to be buried in was a three-piece suit. They honored their son as he was. Just days after the band said their final goodbyes, they were back on the road for a month to play a series of shows on the East Coast. Even though they hadn't had Pigpen on stage for almost a year, things still felt different. They all knew they would feel different forever. A few months later, when the dead finally returned to the recording studio to deliver their first new material since American Beauty, their first studio album ever without Pigpen as a member of the band, the songs were already well-established parts of the dead's live show, and those songs became Wake of the Flood. These songs were different, though. The dead were once again steering their ship to new territory, shedding the Americana-influenced tunes from their previous two albums. The songs were a combination of jazz, R&B, and reggae influences. Wake of the Flood represented the state of the band, once again reaching into the universe for something new. And if the Grateful Dead were never going to be the same again, then the music may as well change too. One song in particular, Stella Blue, was first played live at Pig's final concert. Stella Blue told the story of a musician at the end of a long downward spiral finding his dreams to be broken in the streets he walked on to be lonely. Although the song was written before Pig's demise, it perfectly summarized his last few years on Earth. And though the lyrics spoke of pain, they also spoke of hope and redemption and the opportunity to once again shine. Pigpen's light would continue to shine through the prison of the Grateful Dead's music. Through that dream they all dreamed, through that original fire, 
that still burned and always would. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. 
For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Jerry Garcia struggled up the stairs to the stage. He placed one foot in front of the other, slowly, deliberately, like a long-distance runner with one foot out the door. He exhaled as he hit the top step and then took a deep breath, filling his lungs with the warm summer breeze that blew through Soldier Field. The air also blew through Jerry's beard as he stepped to the microphone, kind of tickled. The crowd let out an emphatic cheer as the ringleader of the Grateful Dead stepped to the center of the ring. They had just been treated to an inspired set from the band, who had undergone a resurgence of sorts over the last few years, returning to the stage more reliably after years of sporadic gigs. Due to a legal dispute, they were without their guitarist and lead songwriter, not to mention their drummer's foil, Robbie Robertson. Sans Robbie, the band were missing one vital original member, but no matter how tired or old the rest of them felt, they were all together. The Grateful Dead could say the same. It was July 1995, and the men who were once young were now growing older. But this silver lining now had much more than just a touch of gray. Jerry was still there, as was Bob, Phil, and Billy. Mickey was there too, having returned in 1975 and remained in the lineup ever since. But the door that led to the piano bench kept revolving. First, keyboardist Keith Godshow left the band in 1979, taking his wife, Donna, with him. He died in a car crash the next year. His replacement, Brent Midland, overdosed on a speedball in 1990. Bruce Hornsby did a quick stint on the keys, but he eventually left too. And the new man at the keyboard was Vince Welnick. Jerry looked over at Vince, and all he could think about was Pigpen. The old memories blended together into some cosmic daydream as they became more distant. The crowd of 40,000 cheered. Behind Jerry, the rest of the dead were kicking into Touch of Grey, the highest charting song of the band's long and storied career. The hair piled on Jerry's head and his lion's mane of a beard showed much more than a touch. It was snow white, like some hippie Santa Claus. Jerry's singing was reserved, delicate, and weak. The dead pressed through the opening tune, still finding their footing. This wasn't an uncommon occurrence over the last handful of years. Decades of touring with very little by the way of breaks, a whole bunch of smoking, overeating, and one hell of a smack habit had caught up to Jerry. He had been battling health issues since the beginning of the tour. It didn't help that the heroin he'd once kicked had slowly worked its way back into his life. The rest of the group may have acted like they were in the dark when it came to Jerry's health issues, but like Pigpen before, in reality, shock and denial kept them from comprehending how bad it was getting. On top of that, the entire tour had been a mess. An oversold venue in Vermont, deadheads struck by lightning in Washington, D.C., a death threat called in on Jerry in Indiana. Two fans died in St. Louis and another 108 were injured when infrastructure collapsed at a nearby camping area. But no matter how bad their luck, the fans that lovingly called themselves deadheads continued to show up, 
continued to contribute to the experience and continued to give the band energy to feed off of. Thirty years and thousands of concerts had built the most loyal fan base in the music industry, many of which regularly attended 100-plus shows. Going to a dead show was no longer just an experience. It meant you were becoming part of a community. And that community lifted the group up and gave them power. Jerry Garcia fed off of it. After a slow start to the show, he began to gather strength, using the music and the vibrations to push through. Just like Pigpen, it pushed through towards the end. And like Pigpen, that tactic produced moments of brilliance for Jerry during the show, including a heart-wrenching rendition of So Many Roads. For Jerry, though, this would be the end of the road. The Grateful Dead finished the final show of that 1995 summer tour with an encore of Box of Rain. They left the stage, never to return in the same form again. Such a short time to be there, and such a long, long time to be gone. Jerry had been heading for a crash for some time. He had struggled through the tour, his energy seemed exhausted. He checked himself into Betty Ford Rehabilitation and, thinking he had successfully kicked the habit, checked himself out after two weeks, just in time for his 53rd birthday. He soon realized he hadn't quite completed the turnaround and checked himself into yet another facility. A few days later, a heart attack ended his life. Jerry's end also meant the end of the dead, at least the version of the band that didn't have John Mayer in it. Like Pig, Jerry had hung on for as long as he could. And like Pig, Jerry battled through anything and everything to remain with the group he loved. And just like Pig, the end of the line came no matter what Jerry tried. The pattern repeated itself, and this time, it left the Grateful Dead doubly devastated. Both Pigpen and Jerry Garcia gone meant the soul and the mind of the group had returned to the cosmos. Bob, Phil, Billy, and Mickey continued to play together in various iterations. They played the songs that Jerry and Pig had sung, the songs that they poured their hearts into every night, the songs they would use to commune with each other, that would change given the mood of a certain member of the group, that could provide levity, heartbreak, and transcendence. But it would never be quite the same. The dream that had begun in Dana Morgan's music store all those years ago with the nine-fingered warlock and the skinny kid with the boundless energy and the rough and rowdy blues man clad in biker gear with a heart of gold had been fulfilled many times over with many triumphs along the way. And it was now just a memory. Jerry Garcia would finally see what was waiting on the other side. He would finally be reunited with his friend and brother. Their journey through time and space had come full circle. Walls were shaking inside the small pizza parlor. The room was packed with college students, local heads, underage kids looking for kicks. All seated at long tables or pushed up tight against the walls. From the far corner, an electrifying version of Howlin' Wolf's Little Red Rooster was blaring out over the crowd. A harmonica solo rang out over the guitars and driving drums. It buzzed with grace, authenticity, and attitude. The band was so loose, but so good. They laughed at each other as they riffed out verse after verse of chords while the harmonica player danced on top of it all. And they were delirious, beyond happy with the turnout. 
It was their third gig ever, third gig. And they had played the same venue a few nights before in nearly an empty room. The second night, the crowd was a little thicker, but now the place was filled to the brim. In fact, there were even kids dancing outside. And the validation felt good, not that it mattered. The music was the real trip. As the song came to an end, the crowd hollered, and the harmonica player slugged down the remainder of the beer and stepped to the microphone. He grinned out at the faces that surrounded him, and then he declared to each and every one of them that he was not just another person. He was, in fact, a King Bee. And the band kicked in with some old Slim Harpo, again hard-driving blues music. And the harmonica player turned frontman strutted around while laying down a slurred, soulful delivery. His raw vocal matched his unkempt appearance. The whole thing was rough around the edges, and there was no putting on airs. And the crowd at Magoo's Pizza couldn't help but smile. They were entranced by the kid in the leather vest with the jet black hair, half drunk, completely lost in the music. It was magnetic. And just a few years later, the Grateful Dead would become one of the most well-known groups in the world, and Pigpen would no longer be crooning Slim Harpo covers to a dimly lit, greasy pizza joint. He would sing to the masses at hockey arenas, auditoriums, and outdoor festivals. Down each and every road Pigpen traveled, however, he would remain true to his original dream of playing the blues for a living. He'd empty a bottle each and every day until it endangered his life. He'd create music that could touch the deepest emotional strings of the human heart. He endeared himself to each and every person he'd met. And even through the phases of pop, psychedelia, Americana, jazz, and a host of other musical genre pretzels the dead would twist themselves into, Pigpen never lost the plot. He never lost the original inspiration and energy that he had helped cultivate from a dusty Palo Alto to a mind-altering San Francisco all around the United States to Europe and beyond. Pigpen's raw energy was always there, in person or in spirit, no matter what direction the band went in. He remained steadfast and loyal to the idea of the dead playing music together. A cold beer, a hot mic, and the sweet, beautiful music he made with the boys would be all Pig ever wanted. It was the only way he knew how to live his life, and he'd follow that inclination with zeal, passion, and authenticity until the wheels came off. And the wheels did come off. Eight years after that night at Magoo's, Pigpen would be gone forever. The band continued to push forward in the same manner, with the same singular focus to the music. They lost more brothers in arms, but they never lost that original fire, the one Pig summoned in a pizza joint in Palo Alto. The same one Pig summoned in clubs, stadiums, and the recording studio. The Dead's music would always reflect Pig's calm demeanor, blowing in like an easy wind, a warm summer breeze, the kaleidoscope of brilliant colors and soft pastels. Pig's music felt comfortable and familiar, like sitting on a bar stool next to an old friend. Pigpen was everybody's old friend, and he was gone too soon. But life as he lived it would continue to color the thoughts, minds, and music of those he held close forever. As the stone above his resting place at the Alta Mesa Memorial Park in Palo Alto reads, Pigpen was and is now forever one of the Grateful Dead. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Joel Edinburgh. 
Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at Disgraceland Pod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.